Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. 1290, he was shattered by grief and retired for a time from public life. My harp is turned to mourning he wrote. I loved her in life. I cannot cease to love her in death. In her memory, he built thirteen stone crosses to mark the route taken by her funeral procession from Harby in Nottinghamshire to Westminster Abbey, where a fine tomb with a bronze effigy still marks her resting place. Edward I could show affection to his parents, his siblings, and his wives, but his children learned not to provoke his rages. On one occasion, he became so angry with one of his daughters that he pulled off her wedding circlet, she was about to be married, and threw it on the fire. Hundreds of his letters to his heir survive, and they are full of hectoring advice or stern reproofs. Yet his generosity was well known, and he did have a sense of humour. In his rare leisure time, he enjoyed hunting, hawking, and tournaments. He was also a pious and cultivated man, literate and well-informed. Since 1290, when he had been asked to arbitrate among thirteen claimants to its vacant throne, Edward I had cherished ambitions to annex Scotland to the English crown and to rule over a united kingdom but his ambitions were continually frustrated by the resilience and tenacity of the Scots under the leadership of two great national heroes, William Wallace, whom Edward executed in 1305, and Robert Bruce, one of the most accomplished of military tacticians and an expert at guerrilla warfare. Yet Edward I was firm, even obsessive, in his resolve and undeterred. When, in 1306, Bruce had himself crowned King of Scots, Edward declared him a traitor, dispatched an army, and drove him into hiding. Thereafter, the war dragged on bitterly and expensively until the end of the reign, by which time the English held every major fortress in Scotland. But Bruce was a doughty and intrepid fighter, and there was no end to the conflict in sight. Edward of Carnarvon rarely enjoyed good relations with his father. Bound to emulate his magnificent sire and live up to his expectations, he was just not capable of doing so. At first, his lack of the requisite qualities was not apparent. He attended council meetings, fought ably on four campaigns in Scotland, and carried out ceremonial duties quite efficiently at home. But all too soon... He came under the influence of a young man whose name would soon become infamous. Mindful that his son lacked companions of his own sex and age group, the king selected ten young men to be in constant attendance on the prince. One was Piers Gaveston, the son of a leading Gascon baron who had fought for Edward I in France and Wales. Gaveston was born at Gabaston in Béarn. 
He first came to England in 1297 with his father, and in 1300, after serving in two campaigns in Scotland and impressing the king with his courtly demeanour, was placed in the Prince of Wales' household as one of his squires. Before long, he had become the most intimate and highly favoured member of it. Piers was a handsome boy, about the same age as the prince. He was graceful, active, intelligent, and skilled in arms. Of his courage there is no doubt, nor of his boundless self-confidence. He was ambitious, indiscreet, greedy, extravagant, and arrogant. His pride, it was said, would have been intolerable even in a king's son, but that was later, after he'd become notorious. The chroniclers were also fond of deriding Gaveston's base and obscure birth, even though his family was an old and respected one. And in the 16th century, John Stowe recorded an unfounded rumour that Piers's mother, Claremonde de Marsan, had been burned as a witch. Gaveston was also accused of leading the prince's household into degeneracy, one claim that might have some truth in it. Gaveston was a witty companion, but his tongue could be barbed, and he showed little respect for those of higher rank than he. Yet he could be charming when he wished, and he certainly charmed the prince. When the king's son saw him, he fell so much in love that he entered upon an enduring compact with him and chose to knit an indissoluble bond of affection with him before all other mortals. Given that both were aged about sixteen at the time, this compact was probably that of two boys swearing blood brotherhood, an established medieval practice. From this time forward... Edward was to refer constantly to Piers as my brother, or Brother Piers. According to the Annales Paulini, he called him Brother because of his excessive love for him. Yet the bond between Edward and Gaveston was indeed indissoluble. It lasted into adulthood and surpassed the love of women. Even death could not sunder it. I do not remember to have heard that one man so loved another, wrote the author of the Vita Eduardi Secundi. The conclusion is inescapable that Edward did fall in love with Piers, or Perrault, as he sometimes called him, and that this love had homosexual connotations. Indeed, it is hard to interpret it in any other way. It was common in the military society of the Middle Ages for men to form close friendships without there being any sexual overtones, yet that between Edward and Pierce drew much comment, and even though most chroniclers refrained from overt accusation, especially in Edward's lifetime, it is clear what they're implying, for their tone is condemnatory. They say that Edward loved Gaveston beyond measure and uniquely and that Gaveston loved him inordinately. The Chronicle of Lanacost accuses Edward of improper relations with Gaveston. Robert of Reading attacks the relationship as an illicit and sinful union that was beyond the bounds of moderation, and charges Edward with desiring wicked and forbidden sex. While the Chronicle of Muse candidly states that Edward particularly delighted in the vice of sodomy. The Vita Eduardi Secundi says that the king's love for Gaveston was fiercer than that of David for Jonathan, whose love David valued above the love of all women, or Achilles for Patroclus. But we do not read that they were immoderate. Thomas Walsingham calls Gaveston Edward's beloved, Ranulph Higdon describes Edward as being passionately devoted to one particular individual whom he loved above all, showered with gifts, and always put first. He could not bear separation from him, and honoured him more than anyone else. As a result, the beloved was loathed, and the lover entangled himself in hatred and disaster. 
In the 14th century, homosexuality was viewed as one of the vilest of crimes. Because it was regarded as a sin against nature and against the divinely appointed order of the universe, those found guilty of it faced, at the very least, excommunication by the Church because it was seen as a form of heresy. Some offenders were castrated or burned at the stake. It is hardly surprising, therefore, that the relationship between Edward and Piers was looked on with almost universal disapproval, even outrage, especially when the two men seemed to be flaunting their liaison. It is true that both Edward and Gaveston married and fathered children, but that was what society expected of them, and it proves only that each man was capable of normal sexual relations. It is also true that Edward acknowledged a bastard son, Adam, who was probably born before his accession. The prince is further said to have been given to the company of harlots in youth. When he was only fourteen, he paid two shillings and tenpence to a certain Maud Makejoy, whose name implies that she was a prostitute, for dancing before him. This all suggests either that he was uncertain of his sexuality in these early years, or that he was truly bisexual. Before long, however, it was Edward's passion for peers that was fueling the relationship. It seems he had quickly come to terms with his sexual orientation, for thereafter, in his naive way, he appeared to see no wrong in it. And that was the root of the problem. For a time, Edward I entertained no doubts about his son's friendship with Gaveston. Initially, he regarded it with approval and showed Gaveston great favour, praising the example he set the prince in his virtuous conduct and courtly manners. In 1303, the two young men earned further royal approbation when they served together in Scotland. However, in 1305, whilst on another northern campaign... Piers blotted his copybook by deserting the army with several other young men to take part in a tournament in France. Edward I was furious. By now, it was becoming clear to the old king that Gaveston was a bad influence on his son, especially after the pair of them, abetted by a gang of other youths, invaded the estates of Walter Langton, Bishop of Chester, the king's treasurer, pulled down fences and scattered the deer and other game. When the bishop complained to the king, the prince uttered coarse and harsh words to him and was sent in disgrace to Windsor Castle with only one servant in attendance there to await his father's summons. It didn't come, and for the next six months the boy remained in disgrace. Worst of all, from his point of view, he was banned from seeing Gaveston. A reconciliation was finally effected in October 1305 through the good offices of Queen Marguerite. At Whitson, 1306, Edward and over 260 other young men, including Gaveston, Hugh Le Dispenser and Roger Mortimer, who were all to play fateful roles in Isabella's life story, were knighted in a great ceremony at Westminster, by which time Gaveston had his own household and had been granted land in ten counties. Soon afterwards, the prince and Gaveston joined Edward I in another campaign against the Scots. But early the next year, Edward of Carnarvon gave his father further offence when he asked him to give peers, as a mark of royal favour, either the royal earldom of Cornwall or the counties of Ponthieu and Montreuil, which the prince had inherited from his mother. Given the king's entrenched prejudices against the alienation of royal lands and the prince's obvious and inappropriate infatuation with peers, it is not surprising that Edward I erupted in rage. He grabbed his son by the hair and dragged him about the room, shouting, you base-born horson, would you give away lands, you who never gained any? The king's fury masked a growing anxiety as to the precise nature of the relationship between Gaveston and his son. 
On February 26, 1307, for certain reasons, which are unspecified in the written order, he banished Gaveston to Gascony. The Chronicle of Lanacost states that Piers was really exiled on account of the undue intimacy which the younger Lord Edward had adopted towards him, publicly calling him his brother, while the Annales Paulini claim that the king was concerned about the inordinate affection that his son had for a certain Gascon knight. Edward I further forbade the prince to have his friend near him or with him, and ordered him never to bestow on him any lands and titles. Even so, by providing so generously for Gaveston's maintenance, he made it clear that he thought peers more sinned against than sinning. The prince and Gaveston were made to swear on the blessed sacrament and Edward I's holiest relics not to contravene the king's edict, which in itself suggests how strong their friendship was perceived to be. Then, in May... A miserable Edward bade farewell to Gaveston at Dover after lavishing gifts on him. In the event, Piers went to Ponthieu rather than Gascony, and apparently with the king's blessing. The prince announced his intention of visiting him there, but King Edward forbade it. At this time, Edward I was in the north, planning a new assault on Scotland. But he was a sick, bedridden man, possibly suffering from cancer of the rectum, and at Brough-on-Sands, on July 7, 1307, he breathed his last, expiring as his servants were raising him to eat some food. The Prince of Wales, now twenty-three, was King of England. This ends Disc 1. Queen Isabella, Disc 2. One of Edward I's legacies to his son was a kingdom nearly bankrupted by a war that looked to be unwinnable. With a great portion of his future revenues mortgaged to Italian bankers, Edward II also inherited a nobility that had chafed and grown resentful under the iron fist of the crown and was determined to regain its lost influence and privileges. Nevertheless, the new king's accession was the occasion for the greatest rejoicing. For he was young and debonair, had the common touch, was seemingly deserving of the immense goodwill of his people. God has bestowed every gift on him and made him equal to, or indeed more excellent, than other kings, claimed Robert of Reading. What high hopes he had raised as Prince of Wales commented Edward's biographer ominously, while the Pope compared him to the biblical king Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who lacked wisdom and relied on the advice of young, violent persons through which his kingdom was grievously divided. In Scotland, Robert Bruce dryly stated that he feared dead Edward's bones more than his living heir. The people were soon to be bitterly disillusioned. All hopes vanished when the prince became king. Edward II's first royal act was to recall Piers Gaveston. He had home his love, observed one chronicler. On August the 6th, even before the favourite returned, his sovereign bestowed on him the earldom of Cornwall, which until recently had been held only by members of the royal house, and brought with it the vast income of £4,000 a year, almost as much as the Queen's dower. No commoner had ever been raised so high at a stroke, yet this creation was made with the approval of some of the magnates. Notably, Henry de Lacy, Earl of Lincoln, one of the most loyal, honest and able servants of Edward I, and a personal friend of that king. During his long career, Lincoln, now 57, had served the crown faithfully as both a general and a diplomat. It was he who had helped to negotiate the new king's marriage to Isabella of France. 
Lincoln appears to have thought well of Gaveston at this period, and when some raised doubts as to whether the king could legally alienate the earldom of Cornwall, which he held with the crown, Earl Henry said that he could because there were precedents. But the majority of the barons did not agree, as much because Piers was an alien of Gascon birth as through envy. Gaveston arrived in England around August the 13th and was soon entrenched at court. The king did him great reverence and worshipped him, almost as if he were a god. There is no doubt that, after the monarch, Gaveston was now the most important man in the realm. Unsurprisingly, the magnates of the realm hated him because he alone found favour in the king's eyes and lauded it over them like a second king, to whom all were subject and none equal. Almost all the land hated him too, and foretold ill of him, whence his name was reviled far and wide. Nor could the king's affection be alienated from Piers, for the more he was told, in attempts to damp his ardour, the greater grew his love and tenderness towards Piers. The king wasted no time in replacing some of his father's ministers and judges. Pricked on by Gaveston, he began by dismissing his old adversary, Bishop Langton, and replacing him as treasurer with Walter Reynolds, whom he made Bishop of Worcester. Reynolds, the son of a Windsor baker and former keeper of the prince's wardrobe, was chosen apparently because he was Gaveston's friend and was skilled at mounting the theatrical entertainments that Edward so enjoyed. Langton was imprisoned in the Tower of London and accused of the misappropriation of public funds. His public accounts were made the subject of an inquiry and his treasure was given to Gaveston. The king also urged the Pope to restore the Archbishopric of Canterbury to his father's staunchest adversary, Robert Winchelsea, who was then in exile. Edward I's dying instructions to his son were to have the flesh boiled from his bones so that they could be carried at the head of a conquering army into Scotland. Edward II ignored this request, just as he had quickly abandoned the war in Scotland. And on October the 27th, his father's body was buried in Westminster Abbey, where the inscription, Maleus Scotorum, the Hammer of the Scots, was later inscribed on his tomb. Two days later, in order to strengthen Piers and surround him with friends, the king had Gaveston betrothed to his niece Margaret de Clare, daughter of Joan of Acre, by the late Earl of Gloucester. The marriage took place on November the 1st at Berkhamsted Castle, with the king as guest of honour. This union not only brought Gaveston into the royal circle, but did indeed strengthen his position not a little, for it much increased the goodwill of his friends and restrained the hatred of the baronage. This was partly because the bride's brother, Gilbert de Clare, the sixteen-year-old Earl of Gloucester, raised no objection to the marriage. He knew Gaveston well, having been brought up with him in the prince's household. Preparations for the king's marriage and coronation were already in hand, but Edward spent most of November in Gaveston's company at his favourite manor of Langley. On December the 2nd, with the aim of enhancing his honour and glory, Gaveston held a great tournament at his castle of Wallingford, during which he unhorsed and most vilely trod underfoot the earls of Arundel, Surrey and Hereford, exulting triumphantly in his victory. The earls never forgave him this insult. His pride, it was said, damaged him more than his prowess. According to the Vita Eduarde Secundi, hatred for Gaveston mounted day by day, for he was very proud and haughty in bearing. All those whom the custom of the realm made equal to him, he regarded as lowly and abject. Nor could anyone, he thought, equal him in valour. The lords looked down on him because, as a foreigner and formerly 
a mere man-at-arms, raised to such distinction and eminence, he was forgetful of his former rank. Thus, he was an object of mockery to almost everyone in the kingdom. But the king's unswerving affection for him prompted the issue of an edict from the court that no one should call him Piers Gaveston, but should style him Earl of Cornwall. Edward was due to leave for France after Christmas, and had to leave his kingdom in the custody of a royal relative or some trustworthy noble. On December 20th, he appointed Piers Keeper of the Realm, which provoked disgusted comments from the chroniclers, but surprisingly no overt criticism from the magnates, most of whom were better qualified than Gaveston for this high honour. Edward and Piers spent Christmas together. Neither can have felt very happy at the prospect of the king's marriage. Gaveston had every reason to resent Isabella and what she stood for. He was a Gascon, and his family had been driven from the duchy during the French occupation. He therefore had good cause to hate and distrust Philip IV, and he would certainly have regarded Philip's daughter as an interloper and a threat to his ascendancy over the king. The evidence suggests that he did his best to stir up trouble between Edward and Philip in a last-ditch attempt to make Edward abandon his treaty with the French, urging that Philip would not rest until he had finally conquered Gascony. But there were others on Edward's council who greatly feared the consequences if their master reneged on his obligations to Philip, and for once they prevailed over the favourite. We have no means of knowing how much Isabella learned before her marriage or understood of her future husband's relationship with Piers Gaveston. It must have been common gossip at the French court, but the princess may have been shielded from any adverse talk. It is inconceivable, however, that Philip IV was not aware of the furor and scandal that his future son-in-law's elevation of Gaveston was causing. Some historians have accused him of hypocrisy in giving his daughter to a reputed sodomite when he was charging the Templars with that very crime. But no doubt Philip would have taken a pragmatic view of such matters. This alliance would extend France's influence, so personal considerations must be set aside. Isabella's preparations for her marriage were now complete. In her trousseau, she had numerous gowns, including some of bordican, velvet, and shot taffeta. Six were of green cloth from Douai. Six were beautifully marbled, and six were of rose scarlet. These gowns would have had tight-fitting bodices and sleeves and circular skirts with trains. Only unmarried girls and queens on ceremonial occasions wore their hair loose. It was fashionable for hair to be curled, and some of the representations of Isabella show her with curly hair. However, as a married woman, she would be obliged to wear a triangular-shaped linen or silk headdress comprising a chin-barb, veil and wimple, one of the fairest ladies in the world. Froissart the beautiful Isabella. She was the fairest of the fair, more beautiful than the rose, and the beauty of beauties in the kingdom, if not all of Europe. Isabella, like her brother Charles, who was also nicknamed the fair, probably took after her father in looks. There is a French manuscript illustration of circa 1315 showing Philip IV with his sons and daughter, but these are in no way portraits. Lacking any precise description, even a note of the colour of her hair, we must look elsewhere for clues as to what Isabella really looked like. Contemporary ideals of beauty favoured blonde, plump women, and we may therefore suppose that Isabella conformed to this type. But there is also some evidence that she had these attributes. There are several extant representations of Isabella, some merely images of a queen, others possible attempts at an accurate portrayal.
Most manuscript illustrations depicting Isabella date from the 15th century and owe much to the artist's imagination. There are a few pictures of her in more contemporary manuscripts, which will be discussed later, but which are again in no sense portraits. Isabella also appears on her seal in the conventional image of a queen whose figure stands between two shields. A corbel head of a woman in a crown and wimple in Beverleyminster, Yorkshire, is said to portray Isabella and bears a striking resemblance to the authenticated stone head of her that appears on the Oxenbridge tomb in Winchelsea Church, Sussex, which dates from circa 1320. Both depict a young woman with a plump face, arched brows and curled hair, and may be true likenesses. Isabella travelled widely in England, and the men who sculpted these heads could well have seen her and attempted to produce her features with some veracity. On the other hand, a corbel head and a roof boss, both said to be Isabella, in Bristol Cathedral, and a boss in the choir of Exeter Cathedral, also purporting to be her, are probably purely representational. Three stone heads in Fifield Church, Berkshire, are said to date from circa 1308 and to represent Isabella, Edward II, and the ship's master, who had brought them from France, while a carved corbel head in the gatehouse of Caldicott Castle, Monmouthshire, is perhaps a crowned Isabella. The heads at Beverley and Winchelsea also appear to bear a familiar resemblance to the tomb effigies of Isabella's father and two eldest brothers at Saint-Denis, which are contemporary and sufficiently individualistic as to suggest attempts at likenesses. By this period, there was a definite trend towards realism in funerary effigies, although most were idealised images. Another representation of Isabella, showing her crowned with curly hair escaping from her wimple, is in the Psalter of Queen Isabella, which was probably commissioned by her. She is shown wearing a long gown belted under the bust and a cloak with an embroidered hem. In her hand is a shield bearing the royal fleur-de-lis of France. As far as his appearance was concerned, Isabella's bridegroom was everything a young girl could dream of. Edward II was tall, about six feet, and muscular, a fine figure of a handsome man, and one of the strongest men in his realm. He had better advantages of birth and nature than any other king, for God had endowed him with every gift. Even hostile chroniclers expressed admiration for his handsome looks, which he inherited from his father. He was well-proportioned and had curly, fair, shoulder-length hair with a moustache and beard. He was also well-spoken, his mother tongue was Norman French, and articulate. And he dressed elegantly, even lavishly. He cannot have failed to make a good impression on his young bride. Almost as soon as he arrived in France, Edward paid homage to Philip IV for his lands in France, and the French king in turn handed over Isabella's dowry of £18,000, which had been appropriated from the confiscated wealth of the Templars. On her marriage, Isabella was supposed to receive the lands customarily assigned to the queens of England, but as these were still in the possession of Edward I's widow, Marguerite of France, and Isabella would only get the reversion of them on Marguerite's death, King Edward undertook to dower her from his lands in France, as well as giving her other lands in England. To mark the marriage, Philip gave Edward and Isabella costly gifts of jewellery, rings, chains and fine war horses. On Thursday, January 25th, Edward and Isabella were married in the Cathedral Church of Our Lady of Boulogne. Isabella was vibrantly dressed in a costly gown and over-tunic of blue and gold and a red mantle lined with yellow cinden, which she was to preserve for the rest of her life. 
On her head, she wore one of the crowns given her by her father, which glittered with precious stones. Her bridegroom was resplendent in a satin guard corp, a sleeved cyclus or surcoat, and a cloak embroidered with jewels. Philip IV's robe was rose-coloured. The importance of this union was underlined by the magnificence of the ceremony and the fact that no fewer than eight kings and queens were present. The King of England, the King of France and his son, the King of Navarre, the French dowager queen, Marie of Brabant, Albert of Habsburg, King of the Romans, and his queen, Elizabeth of Tyrol, Charles II, King of Sicily, and Edward II's stepmother, Queen Marguerite, who was also the bride's aunt, and may have given her, as a wedding gift, a silver gilt casket bearing the arms of both Marguerite and Isabella in catrefoils. It was presumably intended for use as a jewel casket or a receptacle for holy oils. Leopold I, Archduke of Austria, and King Edward's brother-in-law, John II, Duke of Brabant, also attended the wedding, as well as a great throng of princes and nobles from all over Europe. After the ceremony, Edward and Isabella left for the lodgings that had been appointed for them near the cathedral. Their retinues had to shiver in canvas tents which had been set up in and around the town. Medieval custom demanded that the bride and groom be ceremonially put to bed together on the first night, but there is no record of that happening in this case. Given the tender age of the bride, twelve was the minimum age permitted by the church for a girl to have marital sex. The fact that she did not become pregnant for another four years, and the probable sexual inclinations of the groom, it is unlikely that the marriage of Edward and Isabella was consummated at this time. Eight days of celebrations and tournaments followed the nuptials, with a great feast taking place on the 28th. Two days later, Edward entertained Philip's brothers, Louis of Evreux and Charles, Count of Valois, to a sumptuous dinner. The merrymaking was marred, however, when Philip presented Edward with a list of grievances concerning Gascony and warned him not to think of having his marriage annulled, as certain persons in England had advised, because Gascony had only been restored to him because of his union with Isabella and the children that would be born to them. Philip especially condemned those who claim that the English king gains nothing by his marriage with the daughter of the King of France which was probably an oblique but pointed reference to Gaveston. Edward retaliated by pettishly sending Philip's wedding gifts to Gaveston in England. Furthermore, some of the English lords who had travelled to France with the king were already secretly scheming to get rid of Gaveston. At Boulogne, ten of them drew up a declaration of their intent to protect the honour of the king and the rights and privileges of the crown. The festivities came to an end on February 2nd, which was none too soon, given the growing tensions, and the next day, accompanied by Isabella's uncles, the Counts of Evreux and Valois, the King of England and his new queen bade their farewells and travelled along the coast to Visson, whence they took ship and returned joyfully to England. Chapter 2 The King is Lovesick for His Minion In 1308, England was increasingly prosperous and had an expanding population. Society was still predominantly feudal and agrarian, yet the towns and cities were growing fast due to trade and mercantile enterprise. In the two and a half centuries since the Norman Conquest of 1066, Normans and English had learned to live together. Although Norman French was still the language of the court and the aristocracy, and Middle English the language of the commons. The kingdom was predominantly a land of great forests, green fields, 
quiet villages and numerous churches, so numerous, in fact, that it was called the Ringing Isle. Isabella's first sight of the country of which she was now queen was the White Cliffs and Dover, where she and Edward landed on February 7, 1308. Gaveston was waiting to greet them at the dockside, and with no thought for his bride or his dignity, Edward impulsively ran to him and greeted him with an embarrassing display of affection falling into his arms, giving him kisses and repeated embraces, and calling him brother, while Isabella and her uncles looked on visibly dismayed and displeased. Even if the Queen knew nothing of the rumours about her husband and Gaveston, she was greatly offended by his publicly showing this man more affection than he had so far shown to her, his wife. Gaveston had ordered the chief ladies of the Queen's newly established household to assemble at Dover, ready to greet her and attend her on her progress to Westminster. Among them were Elizabeth, Countess of Hereford, the King's sister, now twenty-six, Alicia Daven the Flemish wife of Roger Bygod, Earl of Norfolk, Joan de Genville, the wife of Roger Mortimer, a leading baron, Joan Wake, who was French by birth, and Isabella, the daughter of Louis de Brienne, Viscount de Beaumont. Isabella de Beaumont was married to John, Baron de Vessy, and she was to become as favoured by the Queen as she already was by the King, who was related to her through his mother. Her two brothers, Henry and Louis, would also enjoy high favour with the royal couple. Henry was knighted in 1308. He received large grants of land from the king and was summoned to Parliament as Baron Beaumont. He was to serve Edward in a military capacity in Scotland and on diplomatic missions abroad, and would be an enormously influential member of his household. Edward and Isabella spent two nights at Dover, staying in the twelfth-century keep in the castle, where the royal apartments lay behind walls twenty feet thick. They probably held court in Arthur's Hall, built by Henry III in 1240, and may well have worshipped in the tiny Romanesque chapel dedicated to St. Thomas a Becket, Edward's favourite saint. On February 9th, the King and Queen left Dover and travelled via Ospringe and Rochester to Eltham Palace, where they were to stay pending their state entry into London for their coronation. Eltham Palace, which lies some six miles southeast of London Bridge and was originally a fortified manor built by the Clare family, had long been an important residence. Both Henry III and Edward I had visited there and in 1278 the latter granted it to the powerful baron John de Vesey. In 1295 his son William sold it to Anthony Beck, Bishop of Durham, who rebuilt it. Little is known about Beck's house, but it was turreted and had a tower and a moat surrounded by a stone wall. Access was gained via a timbered drawbridge. The great hall was tiled and there was a wine cellar. The bishop had also created a hunting park to the south of his palace. As will be seen, Eltham became one of Isabella's favourite places. Bishop Beck had already granted the reversion of the house to the king on his death, and Edward may have promised it to Isabella during their stay. If he did, it was not enough to compensate for the discovery made by the dismayed young queen that the income promised by her husband was showing no signs of materialising, and that she had nothing to live on since there was no money in the treasury with which to dower her. Indignantly, she wrote to her father complaining that she was expected to live in poverty. Philip responded by demanding that Edward state, in writing, exactly what financial provision he intended to make for Isabella and any children of the marriage. Edward replied that he had already drawn up such a statement for Isabella, but that his advisers had counselled him not to put his seal to a copy for Philip 
in case it laid him open to further obligations in respect of their children, if Isabella predeceased him. Then fuel was added to the fire, when Isabella noticed Gaveston, whose passion for finery was insatiable, wearing not only the jewels and rings that Philip the Fourth had given to the king, but also some of the jewellery that she had brought from France as part of her diary. Again she wrote to her father, expressing her fury at the avarice of peers and the favour shown to him by her husband, who was neglecting his duty towards her. She was, she asserted, the most wretched of wives. Isabella would have been comforted to know, and perhaps already did know, that the barons were determined to do something about Gaveston. The coronation was due to take place on February 18th, but they warned the king that unless the favourite were banished, they would not take part in the ceremony, which was tantamount to refusing him their oaths of allegiance. At the same time, Isabella's uncles were angrily threatening to boycott the ceremony unless Gaveston seventy and its thoroughfare was lined with houses, shops, and a chapel. It linked the city to Southwark on the Surrey shore, where brothels plied their trade beyond the city boundaries. Two miles upriver lay Westminster, with its magnificent palace and abbey. This, the administrative and judicial hub of the kingdom, was beginning to be regarded as the central seat of government. For the five nights following their arrival, Edward and Isabella lodged in the Tower of London on the north bank of the Thames. The central keep of this mighty fortress, known as the White Tower since 1240 when Henry III had had it whitewashed, had been built by William the Conqueror in the period 1076 to 1087 to stand sentinel over London. Various kings had added to it, Richard I encircled the bailey with a vast curtain wall bisected by towers. And Henry III built more towers and constructed a palace with a great aisled hall between the keep and the river. But the most recent and impressive improvements were those made by Edward I, who had created a moat and built massive concentric defences, including a new water gate, now known as Traitor's Gate, and new royal apartments above it in St. Thomas's Tower. The tower now housed the king's treasure, the great wardrobe, a repository for royal foodstuffs, furniture, jewels and clothes, the state archives, the largest of the royal mints, and the greatest arsenal of weapons in the kingdom. Consequently, it was one of the most important castles in England. It also contained a menagerie, created by Henry III in 1235 to house the animals that were sometimes given to monarchs as gifts. At various times it held lions, bears, leopards, and even an elephant. In this period, the tower had not gained its later notoriety as a state prison, although a few prominent persons had been held prisoner there over the centuries. Edward and Isabella would have lodged in the sumptuous state apartments within Henry III's palace and its adjacent towers, which were located around what was now known as the Inmost Ward and could be accessed only by the Cold Harbour Gate by the White Tower or from the river. These apartments were brilliantly decorated in bright colours and adorned with gold stars, heraldic emblems and perbic marble fittings. There were hooded fireplaces, guard robes, lavatories, in the main chambers, and large pointed arched Gothic windows. Edward II initially used the King's apartments in St. Thomas's Tower, although he later came to prefer Henry III's suite, with its oratory and private watergate, in the nearby Hall Tower, now called the Wakefield Tower so-called because it gave access to the Great Hall. Isabella's apartments were probably those created for Eleanor of Provence, Henry III's queen, 
and refurbished by Edward I for Marguerite of France. These lay at the west end of the Great Hall, beside the Hall Tower. The walls of the Queen's chamber were wainscotted, whitewashed, and painted with roses and trompe-l'oeil pointing that looked like cut stonework. Her chapel windows were glazed. Within the tower precincts there were gardens, a vineyard, and an orchard. In the northwest corner lay the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula, rebuilt by Edward I, and in the white tower was the Norman chapel of St. John the Evangelist, with its Romanesque arches and brightly painted walls. On February the 24th, Edward and Isabella left the tower and rode in procession through the city of London to the Palace of Westminster, the chief residence of the English kings, where Isabella was to spend much of her life during the coming years. The original palace that stood on the site had been built by the Saxon king and saint Edward the Confessor around 1050, but it had been rebuilt and extended over the centuries, and there was nothing left of it by Isabella's time. The palace site now occupied several acres along the north bank of the River Thames, and to the east lay Westminster Abbey, which had also been founded by Edward the Confessor, but been rebuilt by Henry III as a fittingly splendid setting for the Confessor's shrine and a mausoleum for himself and his descendants. In 1097, William II built a huge great hall beside the Confessor's palace. Measuring 240 feet by 67 feet, it was then probably the largest and grandest hall in Europe. Between 1154 and 1189, Henry II rebuilt the palace itself, extending the site to incorporate Old Palace Yard, a new White Hall, a chapel dedicated to St. Stephen, and a great chamber. He also instituted a sophisticated system of water supply with fountains and conduits. Around 1230, Henry III spent a fortune adding luxurious and brilliantly decorated royal apartments that would set a new and advanced standard for royal residences. He also rebuilt the Great Chamber as the famous Painted Chamber, so-called because of its vast murals depicting events in the life of St. Edward the Confessor and warlike scenes from the Bible. This room, with its great Gothic windows, glazed tiled floor and private oratory served as the king's bedchamber and was dominated by a large state bed with a gilded and painted carved wooden canopy and green curtains. In 1237, Henry III built a new chamber for his queen, adjacent to the painted chamber, on the first floor overlooking the river. Her wardrobe was below it, and nearby was the Maiden's Hall, which presumably was to house the Queen's damsels, or waiting women. The Queen's new chamber was wainscotted and had oriel windows with deep embrasures decorated with painted figures, and an allegorical figure of winter painted on the wall over the fireplace hood. On the other walls were murals of the four evangelists, Beyond the Queen's chamber was her private chapel that had pilasters with capitals and crowned heads flanking the arched doorways and the deeply moulded lancet windows, the latter being superbly gilt and coloured. There was also a marble altar font and a green altar cloth. The walls in these rooms were painted in blue and red, while the sculptured reliefs and panelling were highlighted in gold, green and yellow. The whole effect must have been startlingly vibrant. Edward I erected a new main gateway northwest of Westminster Hall and began rebuilding St. Stephen's Chapel, intending that it should rival the Sainte-Chapelle in Paris, the private chapel of the kings of France. Edward II continued this project, but it was not finally completed until 1348. 
There had, however, been disastrous fires at Westminster in 1263 and 1298. The latter destroyed the Whitehall and rendered the Queen's apartments uninhabitable. When Marguerite of France came to England in 1299, Edward I arranged for her to stay in temporary accommodation in York Place, the Archbishop of York's palace that stood by the river between Westminster and Charing Cross. In 1307, Edward II had set about the restoration of the Palace of Westminster so that it would be a fit place to receive his Queen. Throughout the autumn and winter, working by candlelight through the hours of darkness, masons had been cutting and dressing stone and marble, and craftsmen and workmen had shaped timbers, forged metalwork, painted walls and glazed windows. The king himself had supervised the work, but it was still not finished by the time of Isabella's arrival and would not be until the following summer, by which time the cost of the repairs and refurbishments amounted to some £5,000. The restored palace was just as impressive and comfortable as Henry III had intended, and its gardens were delightful, with re-turfed lawns, paved paths, pear and cherry trees and vines. There was a queen's pool, and even an aviary established by Eleanor of Castile. Inside the palace itself, the king had built two new white chambers. One, attached to the painted chamber, was to serve as his bedroom, and the other was added to the restored queen's apartments. We may assume, therefore, that Isabella's accommodation was both spacious and stylish. The Palace of Westminster was not only a royal residence, but was now becoming established as the administrative centre of the kingdom. It was near to London, which had long replaced Winchester as the capital of England, and it also housed the Treasury, the Exchequer, and the chief law courts, namely the Central Courts of Common Pleas and the King's Bench. The coronation of Edward II and Isabella of France took place on February 25th, the Feast of St. Matthias the Apostle. The ceremony was performed by the Bishop of Winchester, assisted by the Bishops of Salisbury and Chichester, because the Archbishop of Canterbury had not yet returned to England. Invitations to the ceremony had, for the first time, included the wives of peers in honour of the Queen. Gaveston had been given the responsibility of planning the coronation, and, predictably, he accorded himself a central role in it, which many were to hold against him for a long time to come. In the morning, the King and Queen went in stately procession from Westminster Hall to the Abbey, walking along a timber pathway laid with blue cloth strewn with herbs and flowers. Above their heads was an embroidered canopy borne by the barons of the sink ports. The crowds were so dense that the royal pair almost had to fight their way through, and to avoid this they were obliged to enter the abbey by a back door. In advance of the king had come the chief magnates, bearing the regalia. The Earl of Lancaster carried Katana, St. Edward the Confessor's blunted, edgeless sword of mercy. His brother Henry, the rod with a dove. The Earl of Hereford, the scepter with the cross. The Earl of Lincoln, the royal staff. The Earl of Warwick, the three swords of state. And the Earl of Arundel, Thomas de Vere, Hugh le Dispenser and Roger Mortimer, the royal robes on a board covered with checkered cloth. But all heads turned when Gaveston appeared, so decked out that he more resembled the god Mars than an ordinary mortal. It was not so much the magnificence of his clothes that caused mutterings at his effrontery, but the fact that he was clothed in pearl-encrusted silk robes of imperial purple, a colour that should have been reserved for the king himself, whose own finery was somewhat eclipsed by that of his favourite. 
Gaveston also managed to upstage the other earls, who were wearing the traditional cloth of gold, the richest fabric normally permitted to those of their rank. All were bristling with jealousy. What enraged the barons and shocked the people most, however, was that Gaveston, with his soiled hands, was carrying that most sacred relic, the crown of St. Edward the Confessor, into the abbey, a privilege that should have been bestowed on the highest noble in the land. Considering that Gaveston had only recently been elevated to the peerage, this was perceived to be a deliberate affront, and it would never be forgotten or forgiven. One earl was so furious with Gaveston that only consideration for the sensitivities of the Queen and the sanctity of the Abbey prevented him from coming to blows with him in the church itself. Edward II took his coronation oath in French rather than the traditional Latin. In addition to the normal undertakings, he fulfilled his promise to the barons by promising to uphold and defend the righteous laws and customs which the community of the realm shall determine. After this, he was anointed with holy oil on the head, hands and breast, and then ascended to a high wooden platform on which was set the gilded and painted wooden coronation chair made by 